Welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queen's and Eastern Ontario. In this episode, we're pleased to be able to replay portions of an interview between Dr. Kimberly Woodhouse, the VP Research here at Queen's University, and Sir Terry Matthews. Sir Terry visited our campus actually a year or two ago, but a lot of the lessons and messages he has, we think, are extremely relevant for thinking about new startups. Sir Terry is the founder and chairman of Wesley Clover International, a private global investment management firm and holding company. Since 1972, Sir Terry has founded or funded more than 100 companies, early data networking giant Newbridge Networks, and current business communications leader Mitel, as a couple of highlights. Sir Terry holds an honors degree in electronics from the University of Wales and is a fellow of the Institute of Electrical Engineers and of the Royal Academy of Engineering. In 1994, he was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire, and in 2001, the Queen made him a Knight Bachelor. In 2017, Sir Terry was appointed as an officer of the Order of Canada. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Canada wants more. Mm -hmm. Mitel, Newbridges, RIM, Blackberry, Shopify's. How do corporations become $100 million companies? What does it take? No, you, you have to work at it, and you have to work hard. <laughs> and it's uh, a, a little overview here. It's a pleasure for me to come to Kingston and Queens. I would say in my career, the best people that I worked with came from this university. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> so that's, that's important to me, whether it was the early Newbridge days, and if you look at the growth of that company, good God, I mean, starting a company with borrowed money, $3,500 borrowed, kind of small, right? And how do you pay somebody when you only have $3,500? Well, you can't because there's not enough money. <laughs> but what you can do is you can pay in a different mode if they're new grads. You give ownership. Whoa, does that change the chemistry? And that's kind of a very early lesson for me. Now, of course, it wasn't hard to, to learn that lesson because they didn't have any money to pay anyone. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you get people to work with you? That's a pretty easy lesson to make, but it turned out to be vital. Uh, another interesting thing is, what do you work on? So you have a team. Now, one way is to say, I have a great idea. I never do that. That's what I don't do. I like to communicate with potential clients in an area that, let's say, you know you know about an area, so makes it easy to talk about that area. Now, I'm kind of lucky because from the age of 15, I was selected in school in a wireless lab. And that wireless lab means that, like, deep in my soul, I'm an engineer. And I understand wireless, whether it's spectrum, power levels, latency in the use of the spectrum, distances, and so on. So, And today, of course, we live in an era where much of the communications is wireless at the end of the, the line. So, uh, so this has served me well in any event. So the two main lessons, and they are absolutely vital, 
to the growth and success of an enterprise, the team. You have to select the team, and if you select the team and you give them ownership, that completely changes the relationship from one where in a normal company environment, I'm saying normal, it's not normal for me, but it is for many people. You work, you get paid. You work, you get paid. Someone offers more money, you're gone. Because you get more money for the work that you do. That's one way. If you have ownership, the chemistry is completely different. And if you work with young people, like think about typical new grad. Are they married? Typically not. They have children? Typically not. If you take a new grad, but selecting the team right, the chemistry is really important. That makes the difference between winning, losing, creating a large company or not. That chemistry, oh, it is so important. And we could talk an awful lot about the chemistry, mm -hmm. how to make a team work well, integrate, trust, work hard. And of course, like if you take uh, somebody fairly young, they don't say, well, Jennifer has... Uh, piano lessons on a Wednesday and George has soccer on a Friday. Well, of course, like if you have children, like that really disrupts the family side, disrupts, disrupts how hard you can work. And hard work ethic is fundamental. So let's go down the track. If you communicate with a potential client and they explain to you in the discussion what they want, well, surprise, surprise, if you build it, they buy it, because that's what they said they wanted. The other side is, it minimized the amount of time for the development, because it's not speculative. The potential client is going to become the client. And if that relationship is good, first of all, they want something. It's in your domain. You build it, they buy it. And in that discussion, there's a thing that I often joke about, and I say, well, does, does that person want a foo-foo valve? What's a foo-foo valve? It's a term I used 50 years ago. You're dealing with a potential client. They tell you what they want. They're knowledgeable about the area, so they can tell you what they want. They're knowledgeable about the competitors, because that's what they want to talk about. And they want something that's differentiated, that's important to them. I say, does that person want a foo-foo valve? Now, <laughs> what's a foo-foo valve? Could be anything. But it's a differentiated thing from the other suppliers. And in that relationship, they'll probably explain to you in a good relationship how much they're prepared to pay for it. Ooh, let's go through this again. It's not speculative because the potential client's telling you what they want. The team that you've got with ownership wants that business. So they work extremely hard, seven days a week, which is much, much better than a company that has 20 layers of management. The bigger a company is, the bigger an organization it is, the longer the time constant to make changes. The board level, the budgets, they'd like to do it, but they don't have the budget to do it. So a little company with no baggage, a highly motivated team, that's the way to drive it really, really hard into a client requirement. And guess what? 
that client requirement translated to a product which the client bought, the client is now an advocate for the next client. Oh, you're interested in the product? Talk to George. I mean, George, I think George really likes the product. Oh, it's a terrific product. Oh, whoa, I can't believe how good that company is. Point, point, point. You have an advocate, you get the second company, the third company, and so on. So in my experience, how did this work? $3,500. The product came out after six months. Now you know how quick the new product came out. First clients bought the product. But I had to live out of that. So in total, only about $1,500 in six months went into the company. But remember, I gave the people who worked with me ownership. Remember that? So guess what? Every $1 10 years later became $2.5 million. Mm -hmm. Ten years after startup, the company's valuation was $60 U.S., times 40 million shares. It's two point odd billion. So that was a, a pretty good company. I mean, today Mitel still runs. Company does about 1.5 billion a year. Mm -hmm. But all those, those things I learned, uh, the second company, of course, you've done something once, second time's a bit easier. And it doesn't matter what company I'm involved in or what group. The question that I ask is always the first question. What was sales last quarter? As soon as somebody tries to go down a track and saying, well, we developed 5 million lines of code last quarter. Who the hell cares about that? I mean, even Michael, as he introduced this information and discussion today, what did Michael say? He said, you know, we'd like to create more, I think you said, $100 million companies. You didn't say we'd like to create more 50 million lines of code companies. Who cares how many lines of code? Right. Who cares what the SaaS is? Who cares what the services are? Who cares? It's just what revenues did you get last quarter? It's not complicated. First question, what was sales last quarter? Do you know what the second question is? What was sales previous quarter? Third question says, what was sales a year ago? Now we're talking about growth. At no time did I ask how many lines of code. Well, I didn't right. ask that question. No. That's question about number 50 or 60. Now I might go down question number four and say, well, what, what sales last quarter were in Europe? Oh, well, we don't do business in Europe, man. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of languages. There's 40 basic languages in Europe. It's tough. Most people say, well, okay, I speak English, I'll do business in the UK. First place after the US, do business in the UK. Well, let's, let's jump out of the box a bit. There's 1.4 billion people in China. It's bigger than all of Europe and all of North America put together. In fact, if you put the two 500 million populations together and remove that from China, it would still be the second biggest country in the world, 400 million. How about India? 1.4 billion. What business did you do last quarter in India? Well, we don't do business in India. Why not? Ask any Canadian company. What did you do last quarter in China? What did you do last quarter in India? Well, you know, it's very difficult. Well, of course it's difficult. What did you do in Germany? Well, they don't speak English. 
Who gives it? Like, give me a break. Like, get the hell on with it. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> and now that we know how Terry really feels. So, right. Terry, you answered one of my questions, uh, which was sort of thinking about global markets um, and, and focusing on the scale-up of the companies. Clearly, go where the market is. Right. That would be your answer, I think, is what you sort of said. Of course. And if you're not global, there's a failure mechanism in there. You try to do business in large companies and you find, well, they say, well, you know, let's suppose you're a typical Canadian company. You typically do business in the U.S. Good. That's good. Then the company says, well, okay, like we have operations in Germany, U.K., France, operations in India, we have operations in Australia. If you don't do that and you're not global, they'll probably go with somebody that is. You have to be global. You have to think global. Stop thinking local. Stop thinking. So is the U.S. local to you? Yep. So stop thinking just U.S. Oh, the U.S. is local. The board is so porous. Who cares? Did I go to Toronto or New York? Do I actually care? So think U.S. local? It's local. And it's local. Okay. I don't, I don't care about Trump. <laughs> So another question I'd like to ask them, too, is how can Canada attract or cultivate management talent with scale-up skills? Say that one more time. How so, can Canada attract talent? Or cultivate management talent with scale-up well, skills? Well, I, I, I never had any problem, and, and maybe some of it is to do with ownership, you know. If you have a company that's growing fast because you're driving it hard, Right. Hard work ethic, seven days a week. Right. You don't like it, go work somewhere else. Right. Seven days a week. You have to drive it hard. And the people around you will feel motivated by the growth of the company, uh, the, the persistence, which is one of the most important words to success, is persistence. Are you persistent? In fact, I would say in my career that's one of the most important words. If you're in a tender and you didn't win, you still keep going after the client. Because the company that did win is probably going to stumble because they stretched a bit too far saying what they can do. So even if you lost it, you keep on with that client. And I would say more than 50% of the time, the supplier that did win has a little bit of a trip up. You say, well, we can do that. Yeah, you know, I should have gone with you in the first place. Okay, there's a contract. Now, they'll either split the business or they'll knock the other guy out. And that's more than 50% of the time. Persistence, the single most important word. So when you're talking about management skills, I think the question is talking, you're, you're coming in back to those core ideas of the hard work. It hasn't work, changed. It hasn't, hasn't changed. changed. Ownership. Management skills. And ownership. Yep. Growth of, the, of the, little, the little company that you got. I mean, if, if it's little and you're doing well, it's going to grow, right? Think global. So to the, so, so to the group out there who are thinking about you know, growing, developing, and, and the decision around going public, mm -hmm. what's some of the advice or thoughts? Because that often ha happens as you get bigger, right? You go public. What are the challenges? Well, I actually get used 
to being professional about the business. I don't care if it's a startup. You've never done anything before. But there are some obvious things. Think as if you're big, like a Microsoft or an IBM. Just think. Think like that. Do they put out quarterly reports? Of course they do. What do the quarterly reports say? Sales last quarter were. That's the first sentence. Microsoft, IBM, like I don't care how big the company, but if you run it professionally, did you put out a quarterly report? For our company? Right. We actually did. Now that's good. Well done. <laughs> okay. Didn't so the important thing, so, so let me take you down that track. You never ever say anything in that report which sets you in a category of lying mm -hmm. or cheating mm -hmm. or hyping. So use words you would never use. You won't believe how good things were last quarter. That says you're not in control. Oh, we had a great thing. I'm like, it was awesome. That means you're not in control. It has to be very simple. I'm pleased to report for Q1 the company had revenues of whatever compared to the previous quarter and a year ago. So Didn't say awesome. So act like you're public before you're public. That, correct. Now, okay. that really takes you down a good track. Let's suppose you listen to this advice that I'm giving. And a year from now, big tech is doing quite well. And I'm a potential investor. There's very few investors, in particular pro, you know, professional investors, that would throw money over the wall and hope that it grows like the grass. Very few people do that. But if somebody's interested in big tech, use Kingston Big Tech, John Doodle at BigTech.com. And so somebody says, well, Big Tech, like I, I was just reading about Big Tech, that's, that's really, uh, that's pretty good. Things going well. Yeah, look at the last four quarterly reports. Oh, you do quarterly reports. Well, thanks a lot. Each report simply reports on what's going on, just as if it was IBM. But the message is even bigger than that. There'll be another one next quarter, and the quarter after that. Nobody puts money into a company with skin there for in the game and say, well, okay, I'm just going to go blind now and I'm not going to be interested. No, 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 absolutely not. If you put out that quarterly report, no hype. Just plain results. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on by clients. Here's potential clients. The funnel filled up. Clunk, I mean, it's not complicated to write a report. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be running a company in the first time place. So if you write a quarterly report, you're keeping the investor up to date. So all the employees get a version of this report, probably put a little more detail learning about the company. When the company wants to raise money, might talk to the father or the mother or the cousin, say, God, you know, I mean, big tech is, uh, is going to raise money next year. Oh, that's very interesting, George. You know, uh, 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 give me the details of that. So the network 
can have further networks, can have friends. This makes a whole different ball game. Now you've raised the profile to people that might be your buyer, might actually be a purchaser of the gear, might be an investor, might be a friend that actually helps you get supply or a relationship somewhere else. Do you actually think that there are key differences between running a small startup company and running a billion dollar company? And if there are, what are they? What are the key, does size make a difference? Does it actually make a difference with the company? I mean, everybody learns, even people who are running a billion dollar company. Why are they running a billion dollar company? Do they have a long history with the company? Do they go up the stack? Does it make them brighter? Probably not. Are they up to date with technology? Probably not. Every day they will be filled, if it's a big company, they have a loaded day every day with internal issues, politics, God knows what. The board member wants this, a management person wants that. Nice thing about young companies, no baggage. Give me a young company any day. Grow it and have fun doing it. And then do what? Get out? No, it's up to you. It's up to you. The decisions in life. I mean, your life is pretty much a function of the decisions you make. Right. Right. So in my case, I tend to be persistent. I tend to want to take a company and go all the way to make it public. I don't particularly like flipping companies. On the other hand, I take a, an attitude where business is business. I have never taken a position where it says, this is my baby and you cannot have it. You can't have it. Everything has a value. I mean, if you wanted to pay me $10 for that, I'd say, you know what, it's yours. So everything so has value. So why do you like to take companies to public? What, what, why, why that? Why is that? Well, then all that? the shareholders end up getting an ability to get liquidity. Okay. Now, an acquisition might do the same thing, depending on the acquisition. But it's much more fun to take a company to the point where it's actually public. Now, you would be surprised at the number of people I meet that just don't get it. If it's a Canadian headquartered company, where are the auditors? Where are the advisors? Where are the legal side? Where are the agents? You see, a headquartered company typically is where the decisions are made. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, you get a lot of jobs just by flipping it, they don't go away. Thanks, you know, I, I mean, I'm listening to that, which is often the position taken even by people in government. But I, I don't buy it. I like headquartered companies. So expand that a little more. Expand that a little bit. What, what, well, uh, I mean, it's not complicated. If you have a company which is headquartered here, this would be where the decisions are made. Right. If the decisions are shifted somewhere else, then all of the professional services. You know, you don't, you don't just have a company with the employees within the company alone. The suppliers... So I'll, I'll give you an example, a Fortune 1000 company, of which, of course, IBM would be part, Microsoft would be part. Uh, you know, there are many Fortune 1000 companies, a lot in the U.S. Well, of course, you can understand that because there's 300-odd million people live there 
in a piece of geography that's about four or five times bigger than all of Europe. So it doesn't make, uh, you know, it makes sense. So if you, if you take a look at a Fortune 1000 company, there are 10,000 plus companies on the supply side. There are 10,000 plus companies on the client distribution and services side. Mm -hmm. So one Fortune 1000 company is equal to 20,000 other companies that live on that. Ooh, that's kind of big, right? So creating a Fortune 1000 company, which is not unheard of here, but true, it's hard. There are some fundamental things which I've talked about here that allowed me to take quite a few companies public. One company became 10 point odd billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Another company became 2.6 billion. Another company became 1.3. Many companies became hundreds of millions. In my career, I've done about 150 tech companies. Do it once, second time's easier. I think after about 10, I really had honed it right down. And so, like in 150 tech companies, but no bankruptcies. You've, you've alluded to it. I think you've been pretty clear, but I want to I come back to this. Other than asking about the sales, what were sales last quarter, yeah. how do you identify promising companies? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, like anything in life, you do a little due diligence, right? What is the sector like? If somebody came up today and said, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of starting up a coal mine, I'd say, well, that's probably in decline. It's not good, right? If I'm discussing something uh, with somebody about, let's say, healthcare, healthcare is a huge thing. Okay, what sector? It's very, very broad. So you, you have to do due diligence. There's no simple answer. How could, how could you and I have been talking about a tech company into concrete? You'd say, well, just a second, like that's, that's a pretty boring subject. Concrete is anything but boring. <laughs> just unbelievable. But most people wouldn't know that. So due diligence is, is just simply got well, to be you, you have got to, to understand And it. then the other thing is always whether... It's like employing someone or, for that matter, investing in somebody. What's the history like? I mean, if I was going to borrow your car and you say, well, I really like Terry, yeah, you know, I'm going to lend you my car. But then you do a little due diligence. You find that every week I've smashed a car up in the last <laughs> 10 years. You'd say, well, you know, it's, I don't think it's insured for you, Terry. <laughs> So okay. a little due diligence, and the other thing is, is just how tolerant someone is. Now, I used to behave in ways that many people wouldn't, just to test how tolerant people are, aggravating them a bit. Because if they behave badly, I can tell you in the world of tech, there will be lots and lots of ups and downs. It's just, of course, on average, you want things to go up. But you don't want somebody that has lack of tolerance. You, you see, think about scale-up. You asked about scale-up. Right. Yep. Here's a team I don't know, let's say 10 senior people. If you're lucky, I get 24 hours of your time, 24 hours of my time, 24 hours of everybody's time, because they're all working for a common goal. Now, that's good scale-up. 
Use bad scale-up. You don't make a decision unless I say it's okay. You have to come to me for every decision. Now, you're going to make errors like I'm going to make errors. But in the world of trust and scaling up, I have to rely on you. I have to trust you. If everything you do has to come to me for approval, I just limited the scale-up. It won't work. Think about a game of soccer. The teams that win, they work well together. If I kick the ball to you, I'm hoping you're going to do a good job with that ball. You don't look to me and say, should, should I be kicking the ball? No, for God's sake, give me a break. I totally rely on you to take that ball. And I think I know what I'm going to get, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what role can and should universities play in helping companies scale? Space, expertise, new grads that are smart, introduced to the company. You probably put, it's like, again, putting a little bit of a, of a brand behind the company. One of the best things you can do in any startup is remember that you're only as good as who you relate to. Who are your friends? Who are the supporters? So here is a real good one to always remember. Always remember. If, if you want to grow a company, it's almost always the case that you need investors. Investors want to know, are you an honest person? Do you give quarterly reports? Are the numbers honest? Or have you hyped them up? So you say, well, okay, very early on, I've developed some technology with a small group, and I'm going to have a board of directors on oversight of the company. Oh, that's a little different. And if you can find somebody that used to be an auditor, so in Kingston, you'd say, well, okay, like up until a year or two ago, who managed Deloitte's? in Kingston. Now the chances are high that the person who managed Deloitte's as the general manager here, now retired, they started off planting tomatoes in the garden. That's what they did because they've got time for gardening now. The wall needed fixing at the front of the house so they had that like redone and they did that <laughs> themselves. And the the driveway it like it needed like some new painting on the driveway and they re-insulated the roof. Now they're sitting down one morning twiddling thumbs and wondering what to do next. But their entire history has been in business. Now along comes Big Tech Kingston, says, um, you know, Jennifer, uh, we're looking for some board members. I just wondered, you know, would you be interested in one day a quarter to be involved in a board meeting? Oh, that's interesting. What do you do? Clunk, clunk, clunk. If Jennifer can now be on that board, the numbers have to be honest because Jennifer can't do it any other way. Right. Jennifer used to be the general manager of Deloitte's. If I'm an investor and you say, well, here's the last four quarterly reports, and, you know, if you have an issue on the finance, you can talk to Jennifer Jones. Uh, you know, she used to be uh, with Deloitte's. No kidding. I look up Jennifer Jones. Oh, long career with Deloitte's. Those numbers are accurate. They're not screwed around with. And the entire format of finances, 
even the credibility with the bank. Oh, Jennifer Jones is on the board. Uh, and I'm RBC, and I say, well, uh, Jennifer, well, like, how is this company? And clunk, clunk. The likelihood of getting a loan, the likelihood of getting investors. You just raised your profile just because of who you had on the board. And, and universities can help facilitate Oh, that. no question, no question. Okay, any other things that universities could do? You've got space, you've got... Well, do you have new grads that come through every year? I don't know. I mean, I no, made a... No, we don't graduate most of them. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I made a point earlier on when we started talking that some of the best people I have ever hired, the original Newbridge team... We're from Queens. In about 12 years from the first product. I mean, all of the first year came out of this university. Yep. Now, how about that? $10.7 billion. How did the numbers go? First year sales from nothing. We had no product. Had to develop the product. First year, $1.2 million. Second year, $16.8. Third year, $68 million. We went public in the third year. How about that for growth? Mm -hmm. You want to know if Queens is, is part of my heart here? Uh, thanks to a very attentive audience. And uh, uh, Sir Terry, uh, Dr. Woodhouse, thank you so much for, uh, for a wonderful talk. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Terry. <laughs>